Second Samuel chapter 12. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in verse number 7 uh, to start with, and uh, we'll get into the message here uh, right away. Verse 7. The Bible says, And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. Nathan says to David, over his sin, thou art the man. The title of the message tonight is this, When God Confronts Your Sin. When God Confronts Your Sin. Let's pray. Lord, help us tonight with the message. Help us to be attentive. Help us to be responsive. Help our hearts to be tender. And Lord, help us to be uh, um, quick to see where we have a hard heart. And Lord, where we have grown aloof where we have uh, a callous that has created a, a, an aloofness toward, uh, Lord, your conviction. And God, help us to rip that off tonight and go back to being people with a tender heart. And Lord, a, a, a tear in the corner of our eye over our sin. Lord, help us to mourn and weep when we do wrong and it's brought to our attention. Lord, help us to be people that do our very best to seek to live holy and godly lives. Help us to be people that are spirit-filled in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I talked about in the sermon this morning how that no one likes uh, rebuke. No one likes to be told that they're wrong. There's uh, a cousin thought to this that is equally true, and that is that confrontation is not fun for most of us. I've met a handful of people that like confrontation. They enjoy going toe-to-toe. They they thrive off of it. But, But for most of us, we don't like confrontation, whether we're the one doing the confronting or we're the one getting confronted. We've all been confronted by someone. And sometimes the confrontation is necessary and and the one who stands toe-to-toe and they're confronting us, they are correct in what they say. Other times, someone may confront you over something and they're way off base and what they're saying to you uh, is either greatly exaggerated or just totally untrue and you think you're accusing me of what you're confronting me over what I have not done I've not even come close to doing what are you saying to me sometimes you must be the one to confront how many of you here hate when you know you need to confront someone and you, you, you know you need to do it but you just don't really want to do it. How many know what I'm talking about here? You hate it, right? You hate confrontation. You hate the head-to-head. What happens is uh, you get nervous, right? And you think through all the scenarios. I'm going to say this, and they might say this, and and then I'm going to need to say this, and and this could either go really well or it could get really ugly. And you size up the person, right? Are they approachable? Are they someone who can handle confrontation? Are they a meek spirit, or are they rough and gruff and defensive and going to attack? And 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 how is this going to go? Maybe uh, your heart begins to race inside your chest as you are approaching the person, and and maybe your mouth starts to dry up. You get cotton mouth a little bit, right? And uh, maybe. Blood rushes to your head and your hands, and you get sweaty palms, and you think, "Oh my, I I can't believe I'm about to do this." Uh, no one is better at confrontation than God. No one, in part because He knows everything, and when He confronts you on something, He's right and you're wrong every time. And there's just no way, no other way around it. There's no uh, there's no shading things a certain way. There's no two sides or three sides of the story. There's God's side of the story, and that's it. 
when God confronts us, He's right and we're wrong. And um, uh, do you remember when He confronted Adam and Eve in the garden? Remember, they ate the fruit and uh, they're hiding, right? Jesus or God comes down in the cool of the day to walk with them like He always did. And Adam and Eve were not standing on the path waiting for Him. They were hiding with fig leaves on behind a tree. And how did God confront Adam and Eve? Did He come at them guns a-blazing? I can't believe you ate that fruit! No, no, no. He, uh, he just asked open-ended questions, right? Adam and Eve, where are you? Why are you hiding from me? And then He asked them a very specific question. Did you eat the fruit? Did you do it? And what did Adam do when he was confronted? He blamed Eve. And then what did Eve do? She blamed the snake. Um, sometimes when, um, uh, when, well, when God confronts us, he is always right. Sometimes confrontation goes uh, great. You confront someone over something they're doing that bothers you. And boy, they handle it in stride. And I have to say, in my experience of confrontation, this is the exception to the rule. Because people are proud. And people don't handle confrontation well. Before I move on any further in the message, how well do you handle confrontation? Let's say that I saw you getting up and, out, getting up and leaving the service multiple times, which I don't have anyone in mind. But let's just say it was you. And I yanked you in my office and said, Quit getting up, quit getting up and leaving church. You're distracting everybody. Oh, I'm going to go find another church. I, I can't believe the pastor talked to me that way. How well do you handle confrontation? Boss calls you in at work and rakes you over the coals, and you may not like his spirit, but you know he's right. Okay? Are you fair-minded and objective enough that when someone levies uh, uh, something against you that's actually true, are you objective enough and uh, self-aware enough to go, you know what? He's right. She's right. I, I need to pause. I need to make a change, and I need to get better. And I need to admit that I've done wrong. So many people are so terrible at confrontation. If you're married here tonight and you want to know how good you are at confrontation, ask yourself this question, how well do I do when my spouse confronts me? Because most of us who are married don't do so well with it there. Right? Especially if your spouse comes at you with an attitude you don't like. And you think, well, I, what happens? We, we get defensive, we put up the wall, and uh, we begin to say, well, you do this, and you do this, you do this. Sometimes confrontation goes great. Again, the exception to the rule. In fact, I probably could have come up with a couple more examples if I would have looked through the Bible or just really thought through it real hard. I had a whole bunch of instances come to mind in the Bible where confrontation goes wrong. I only had one instance that came to mind when confrontation went right. And it's right here in 2 Samuel 12. David handled confrontation from Nathan perfect. He really did. He handled it really well. I'm sure there's other examples. I couldn't come up with one right off the top of my head. After church, some of you are just going to pop a bunch of them out at me, all right? And uh, you, maybe you can think of them, but it, nothing came to mind. However, how about when confrontation goes wrong? You remember when Peter confronted Ananias and Sapphira over their gift to the Lord? You remember that? Peter says to Ananias, did you give the whole amount? He says, yep. And he says, you are lying and Ananias drops dead of a heart attack right there. They take him out back and bury him. 
they had had Facebook back then, Sapphira wouldn't have got caught in the trap. She would have seen the the uh, the, the live of him being carried out and buried, right? But uh, there was no uh, social media. There was no text messaging. Sapphira comes in a few hours later. Hey, is this the amount you guys gave? Is this the whole uh, uh, sell of the land? Sapphira uh, locks up with her husband, lying. Yep, and she drops dead. That didn't go so well, did it? That was confrontation didn't go so well. How about Samuel and King Saul? Remember, Samuel walks in and he says, what is that bleeding of the sheep I hear? And uh, Saul says, uh, oh, well, the, the people made me <laughs> keep a few of the sheep, and um, they're for sacrifice. That's what those are for. And uh, Samuel says to Saul, God would rather have your obedience over your sacrifice. Right? And what happened there? Saul looked at uh, Samuel, and, or rather Samuel looked at Saul and said, God has ripped the kingdom from you. As Saul is turning away, or Samuel's turning away, Saul grabs hold of uh, Samuel's cloak there, his mantle, his coat, and tears it. And he says, just as that's been torn into your hand, the kingdom is being torn from you. How do you respond when you are confronted over your wrongdoing? Our natural response is the fleshly response. I've said this on a regular basis, but uh, oftentimes the flesh is the first responder. First responder. Somebody does something we don't like and the flesh comes rushing in. When that happens, you have to take a big step back and say, I am not going to let the flesh have control. What is the fleshly response when we're confronted? I wrote one, two, three, four, five responses that are fleshly down. Write these down. Deflect. We deflect. Okay, here's an example of deflecting. Someone says, hey, I saw you speeding down the highway. You say, well, you speed too. Well, maybe, but that doesn't change the fact that you were speeding, right? This is a police officer pulls you over and says, I got you going 68 and a 55. And you look at the officer and say, well, do, do you ever speed in that cruise car? You're deflecting, right? It's actually a really good question to ask the officer. I'm not saying you should do it, but, you know, maybe to keep him honest, right? Deflect. Here's another one. Blame. We talked about Adam and Eve a few minutes ago. Isn't that what they did? Adam says, it's the woman that thou gavest means. It's her fault and your fault. It's her fault because she gave me the fruit. It's your fault because you gave me her. And Adam says, it's not me, it's you. Right? We blame. Blame someone else. Right? You have kids. And one of them does wrong. Well, uh, she made me do it. He made me do it. Blame, blame, blame. Uh, here's another one. We rationalize. Someone uh, confronts us over our wrongdoing. We've rationalized why it's not necessarily wrong or why it's not as wrong as maybe it seems. And uh, listen, you can rationalize and justify just about anything if you work hard enough at it. In the book of Judges, what's the, what's the, the theme verse of the book? Every man did that which is right in his own eyes. That's, rational, that's rationalizing sin. How about this one? We deny, right? Just flat out deny. I didn't do that. <laughs> Lie. <laughs> I wasn't speeding. Yeah, you were. Uh-huh. I got your license plate, bud. All right? I know it was you. I, I, I didn't say that. I didn't do that. I didn't go there. I didn't behave that way. Uh, you, you're making the whole thing up. By the way, a lot of gaslighting revolves around just flat-out denial that I didn't do it and then the quick turning around and pointing at uh, a discrepancy in your life. Someone once said a... a a gaslighter, a narcissist. They, I didn't do it, but if I did, it wasn't my fault. 
And if it was my fault, it wasn't a big deal. <laughs> and they just continue to go down that road. Here's one more response. They defend that the, uh, we defend ourselves def- to defend oneself. Defend, defend, defend. And, and again, we're just defending, uh, uh, we're, we're deflecting, we're defending, uh, we don't want the attention on us. All five of these responses are rooted in one word, and that word is pride. We're proud. We're proud. And do not, we do not get, um, they do not get us to a place of repentance. Now watch this. If you're doing wrong, and someone confronts you, whether it's a brother or sister in the Lord, a spouse, right? Or God Himself is... Conf- I'm going to talk about tonight, when we get more into the message, I'm going to talk about sometimes God has directly confronted me over my sin. I'm going, share, share, I'm going to share a very vivid example of that with you. But whether it's God or it's a, a brother, sister, a spouse that's directly confronting you over your sin and, and you know you're wrong, even any element of what they're saying is wrong, uh, true, and you can't just uh, 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 humble and, re- and repent, the reason why you can't do it is because you have a deep root of, root of pride in your heart. Last week we talked about David's great sin of his adultery with Bathsheba. Murder of, of her husband Uriah. Now God is going to send a prophet named Nathan to confront David over his sin. I believe that we can learn much from David about how to respond when God confronts us over our sin. So let's jump into the outline tonight. Four thoughts. Four thoughts out of Second Samuel 12 as we consider the title, When God Confronts Your Sin. Number one, notice Nathan's parable. Nathan's parable. Look back at the last verse of chapter 11. Verse number 27. The Bible says, And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I have grown up hearing this story my whole life. But as I put last week's message and this week's message together, I feel as though in my study of the life of David over the last several uh, months, the calendar year 2022, I feel like David has sort of become a personal friend. And I know that might sound funny to say he's a biblical character that lived 4,000 years ago. But as I've followed his life, I have really gotten to know David well. When I got into chapter 11 and 12, there were a couple of times I just had to put my push my Bible to the side and put my notebook and my pen down and I was on the brink of tears because I couldn't believe what David had done. I couldn't believe the tragedy that David's about to bring on his family. It's heavy. It's just heavy what he did. The Bible says that the thing that David did, it displeased the Lord. Letter A, notice his appeal to David's conscience. His appeal to David's conscience. Look with me at chapter 12 and look at verse number 1. The Bible says, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought nursed up, and it grew together with him, with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his own bosom. Lay in, his, lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring of the traveling man that was coming to him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it 
for the man that was come to him. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, uh, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Really? Over a lamb? You're going to kill him? No, I would agree that that's horrible, right? I mean, you got a guy who's got a lamb, little female ewe lamb, and, you know, it's like sleeps in the bed with it, and, you know, like as close as some of us are to our pets. But, and he shouldn't have taken that little ewe lamb, stolen that ewe lamb, and, and, and turned it into, you know, you're turning little, little pet, I don't know, Sheila, whatever you want to call her, into someone's dinner, right? I mean, that's, that's messed up. That's wrong. That's not right. But David, you want to kill the guy? Why was David so angry? Because David was overreacting. Well, why was David overreacting? Because he was guilty. And when we're guilty, we want to vicariously punish others. Punish ourselves through others. I see parents do this. They have a tendency toward a sin. And then they see that sin in their child. And they're way harder on that child for that sin than they are maybe something that they don't personally struggle with. And they're punishing themselves by punishing the child. David here is angry. He's overreacting. In fact, Levitical law tells us that for the stealing of a sheep, you were to pay back fourfold. But nowhere does the Bible say that someone was to die or even be put in prison. David is overreacting because David knows he's guilty of this very thing. His appeal, Nathan's appeal to David's conscience, let her be, speaking of Nathan's parable, notice his ability to stand courageous. This is an angle that I felt the Lord gave me as I studied this, nothing, something I had not thought of before. Look at verse 7. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. Can you imagine the conversation that Nathan and Jehovah God had prior to this? Stop and think about this. Nathan is in his study and God comes down and back in the Old Testament, God spoke directly to his prophets and God verbally tells Nathan, hey, we need to talk. Hey, David, and tells, tells him the whole story about what David had done with Bathsheba and Uriah. I can just picture Nathan sitting in his study, weeping. You mean David, my, my king. You mean David, the man that brought Israel to a place of worshiping God. I mean, collectively together, he is the man who is going to have written the, most of the book of Psalm uh, that the nation of Israel uses to worship the Lord. The man after God's own heart. Uh, that David, he did what? God says to Nathan, after he collects himself a little bit, he says, and I need you to go into his courtroom and I need you to confront him. Oh, God, please send someone else. Oh, God, not me. This is the same prophet, Nathan, that told David, Sure, David, go build the temple, only to have to come back and say, No, David, God says you can't build the temple, but he's going to build your house. He's going to bless you, Second Samuel 7. In fact, he's going to bless you so much, David, Jesus is going to be born. The Christ is going to be born through you. He, 
The Messiah is going to be called the son of David. Oh, the kindred, oh, the friendship that David and, uh, and um, uh, Nathan had. And now Nathan has to walk in the courtroom and tell him this story about the ewe lamb being stolen and served as dinner and say, David, thou art the man. Look down at verse 8. What else did Nathan say to David as God's messenger? Speaking on behalf of God, he says, And I gave thee my master's house, thy, thy master's house, speaking of Saul, and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel out of Judah. And if, thou, if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. You asked for it, David, I would have given it to you. Verse 9, Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. And hast taken his wife to be thy wife. And hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house. Because thou hast despised me. And hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Nathan called out David for his great sin of adultery and murder. Now when David's heart he knew he was wrong. But now the preacher, the prophet had put his finger in his face and was stating it out loud. You know, there's a difference between knowing in our heart that we did wrong and having someone say out loud what it is that we have done wrong. I remember as a young man, I was attending a large church. We had a guest speaker come in. Never met the man, and to this day I've never even shaken his hand. I remember sitting in a large auditorium about halfway back, right hand, my right, your left, left-hand column, right on the aisle. A preacher got up that night. You would have thought he followed me around for the last six months and watched everything I had done wrong. He could not have been more specific and correct in describing the sin that was going on in my life. He had my number the entire sermon. I mean the entire sermon. It is like he hand-wrote a sermon customized to me. And I remember about halfway through that sermon, I couldn't take it anymore. I put my head down and I just began to weep. Large auditorium. Preacher probably never even saw me cry. I knew that God was confronting me directly through that preacher over my sin. Knew it. And you know what? When I was doing the sin, I was deflecting, I was denying, I was all five of those things I described earlier. But when the preacher got up and said it out loud, I realized just how wicked and awful it was. We live in a time, I mentioned this this morning, we live in a time where people do not want to hear sermons on sin. They do not want to be confronted over their own wrongdoing. 
We live in a time where we make excuses and we, yeah, but it's not that bad. Yeah, but everyone does it. Yeah, but it's okay. Yeah, but, Pastor, we live in a a, a lascivious age and I'm not as bad as him and I'm not as bad as her. I'm not doing these things. And God says sin is sin. And sin is what nailed me to the cross. And you, my friend, need to get real about your sin. And when someone sticks their finger in your face and says, Thou art the man, or Thou art the woman, how do you respond? When I get up here and I preach the Bible, or you go to a life group and a life group teacher gets into the Word of God and the Spirit of God begins to say, Hey, right there, right there, that's you. Hey, right there, you need to get that right. How do you respond? Do you get offended? Oh, so many people have gotten offended over things that have been said. And instead of uh, confronting their sin in pride, they bow up and, and they buck and they run from the Lord and they run from church. Christian, you ought to be thankful that there are some people in your life who can preach the Word of God and confront you over your sin. And, and, and listen, don't run from it. Don't run from it. Sadly, people shop around for a church that makes them feel good. We shouldn't, listen to this statement right here. We shouldn't want church to make us feel good, but rather help us to live good. Amen? We shouldn't want a church that helps us uh, feel good, but rather helps us live good. I'd rather have a preacher say, that right there is wrong, and the Spirit of God says, hey, that right there is wrong and it needs to go, and now what? You know what? I'm going to get rid of it. With time, I'm going to work on it. Now I'm going to live in a way that pleases the Lord. Nathan's parable, number two, we see David's punishment. David's punishment. Letter A, we see the spread of David's sin. The spread of David's sin, letter A. Look with me at verse number 11. This is heavy. Nathan speaking here. He says, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of the sun. We should not be surprised when we plant the seeds of sin in our lives. We should not be surprised when the harvest arrives sometime later. I want you to imagine that you get into a large boat and you take it to the middle of a large pond. And you stand up there in that boat and with a big, heavy, boulderish style rock, you hold it right at your chest and you throw it over the edge of that boat and Kaplunk, it goes into the pond. And what happens after that heavy rock hits the water? You have a ripple effect. You have waves that make their way all the way out to the shore. Now, the biggest waves, the biggest ripples, are the ones closest to the rock. But that entire pond is affected by the dropping of that rock into the water. That entire, the entire pond. You choose to go commit some sin, kaplunk, there's going to be a ripple effect throughout your life. It's going to affect, sadly, it's going to affect others. Those most affected by David's sin was who? It was his family. Notice those words back in verse 11. Look back at verse 11. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up against thee, look here, out of thine own house. 
as we will see next week, David's son by one wife named Amnon had a crush, deep crush, a sexual crush on his half-sister Tamar. Amnon's friend and cousin Jonadab would convince Amnon and give him a plan. Amnon would end up raping Tamar. David, what are you going to do to Amnon? Not much. Because you took advantage of Uriah's wife, didn't you? Absalom is Tamar's full-blooded brother, and he's angry that Dad did not punish Amnon. So he waits for some time, throws a big birthday party, has Amnon come to the birthday party, and he murders him in blood, hot blood, in front of everybody. David, what are you going to do to Absalom for murdering Amnon? Not much, are you? You don't have the authority to say much because you murdered Uriah. Absalom flees to his grandparents' house in another country with Joab's help. Joab, his general, intercedes and Absalom is brought back to Jerusalem, but David and Absalom refuse to talk to each other. Absalom eventually stands there at the gate and he convinces people not to go see David, but to give him their hearts. Absalom then uh, leads a revolt and Absalom runs David off of his throne and then does something tragic. He takes David's concubines and he sleeps with them on the rooftop of the palace for the entire city of Jerusalem to watch. Horrible. Horrible. Some shallow-minded Bible theologian may read verse 11 and say, well, Absalom did that because God said he had to. No, no, no. God was writing in his, God was writing his foreknowledge what he already knew David's sin would create and do. David chose a path of great sin, and his family is the one who are paying the price. They learn from Dad's example. Now watch this. Where did David's children learn their behavior? David sinned in secret. David sinned out of view from his children, yet his sin was still repeated by his children. His sin was private, walled off from his children, yet his sin was still repeated by his children. You may think, no one knows about my sin. But God knows. And in time, your children will know. And in time, unless they turn to God's grace for help, they very well may end up repeating your sin. I'm going to share here my opinion, and I want to preface by saying this is my opinion. This opinion is a Bible-based opinion, but all the same it is an opinion. I believe that a predisposition to, to generational sin is real. I believe that if you have a parent who struggles with a particular sin and has a strong slant in leaning toward that sin, I believe that children are born with a strong desire to do the same. 
And, and listen, uh, you may be born and then adopted away from your parents and grow up on the other side of the world. I still believe that genetically it's in you to follow and do, do that same sin. You say, Pastor, uh, take me to a chapter and verse. I'm telling you this is my opinion. It's my opinion. Parents who adopt uh, children from the other side of the world, I have known folks who've done this. And the children end up struggling with the exact same sins their parents struggled with and they did not even know their parents struggled with those sins. You say, well, Pastor, can this be overcome? And the answer is, oh, yes, it can. God's grace can help you overcome anything. You don't get to point backwards and say, my daddy was a drunk, that's why I'm a drunk. God's grace can help you overcome being a drunk. You don't get to say, my daddy was a player and and slept around, so that's why I do it. No, no, no. You get saved, God's grace can heal you from that behavior. You don't get to say, well, my my mom uh, was angry and depressed all the time, and that's where I get it from. I can't help it. I'm Irish, or or I'm I'm redheaded, or or whatever it is, right? You don't get to say that. I'm I'm Latin. I can't help it. I'm just I, I speak my mind. No, no, no. You don't get to say that. God's grace can help you overcome. But mom and dad, understand that when you choose a life of very sinful behavior, no matter how private it is, there's a very good chance you're setting up your children to fall in those same traps. The spread of David's sin. I don't say this tonight so that you have an excuse on your behavior from your parents. I say it tonight for the parents to be very careful about their children that are following in their footsteps. You choose your path carefully. Letter B, we see the spotlight on David's sin. Look down at verse number 12. Again, God says through Nathan to David, For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. Most famously said in Numbers 32, 23, Be sure your sin... Or Moses, rather, famously said in Numbers 32, 23, Be sure your sin will find you out. You may sin behind your parents' back. You may sin behind your spouse's back. You may sin behind the preacher's back. You may sin behind the boss's back. You may sin behind the IRS's back. But you cannot sin behind God's back. He knows everything you do. Everything. And when you cross the line with God's long-suffering, He very well may expose you for all to see your sin. It's better to deal with your sin when it is private than for you to wait for it to become public. Deal with it while it's still private. Deal with it while it's still private. Deal with it before God makes it public. Oh, I have known many, many men, and I can't speak on this topic about women because I'm not one, but I just speak about men because I'm a man and, and I've done a lot of counseling and I have seen a lot of this. Can I just speak to the men in the room tonight? Will you listen to me? A lot of men are so stubborn They have behaviors that are hurting their home. They have behaviors that are hurting their lives. And a lot of men will not change until either everything is taken from them or until they face the threat, a severe threat, a believable threat of everything being taken away. Why, guys? Why? You're going to wait until you've broken your neck before you decide to stop doing what you're doing? You're going to wait until you've lost your job and you've, you've stymied your testimony at church? 
You're going to wait until your kids hate your guts before you change? You're going to wait till the divorce papers arrive in the mailbox? Or your wife is leaving you and saying, I might come back if you change? Before you actually change? It's better that you get out ahead of that and say, I have a sin problem. It's not my parents' fault. It's not my spouse's fault. It's not my circumstances. It's not the way I was raised. I'm not going to be a product of my environment. I'm going to own up to who I am and where I am. And God, you and I are going to get busy and we're going to fix this thing. And I'm going to take the confrontation over my sin and I'm going to get it right. Because my family and my children and my future will uh, depend on it. Don't wait until God has to turn the spotlight on and shine it right on what you're doing. You think, well, how's He going to do that? I'm very good at getting away with what I do. And I just say, who do you think you're fooling? We have a God who knows everything and can do whatever He wants. And again, you can do it behind everyone else's back. You're not doing it behind God's back. He knows. Nathan's parable, David's punishment, number three, David's penitence. David's penitence. What did David say when Nathan confronted him? I wonder if Nathan's knees were knocking. I wonder if Nathan was nervous. Sometimes I think we maybe think Nathan's just like this uh, cold-hearted, you know, grisly John Wayne type who just walked in there, right, and just... Thou art the man! Stormed out feeling good about it. I think Nathan was probably nervous going in. I mean, he's confronting not just anyone. He's confronting the king. I wonder if Nathan played this through in his mind. What's David going to say when I not only tell him what he's done and that I know, but how God's going to punish him? Look at verse number 13. 2 Samuel 12, 13. David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Such a short verse. Turn over to Psalm 51. David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The very first thing you should do when God confronts your sin is to own it. Own it. Don't make excuses. Don't point the finger. Don't deflect. Don't deny. Own it. Don't blame your parents. Don't blame your past. Don't blame your circumstances. Don't rationalize your sin. Don't downplay the severity of your sin. David did none of this. David owned up to what he had done. It's not my father. It's not my mother. But it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my sister. Not my brother. But it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Look at Psalm 51. And we'll see David own his sin. And this prayer is prayed while he lays on his face before God after Nathan confronted him. Look at verse 1. David prostrate on his face says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Look here. Blot out my transgressions. No excuses being made. Wash me thoroughly thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. He's like, I'm not making any excuses. No bones about it. When you judge, 
I am in the wrong 100%. No excuse. Verse 5. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden parts, thou shalt make me to know wisdom. The very first thing you should do when God confronts you over your sin is own it. But it's not enough to take responsibility when you have sinned. That's only the beginning. Letter A, notice his remorse. His remorse. Go back, hold your place in Psalm 51. We're going to bounce back and forth a little bit here. Go back to our principal text, 2 Samuel 12. Look at verse 16. David therefore besought God for the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. The elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not. Neither did he eat bread with them. It came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? One part of the passage we did not read is that Nathan tells David, because of your sin with Bathsheba, God knows this, the child that you two have conceived in this affair is going to die. Going to die. And the Bible says that the child is smitten down. He's made sick. And then David goes and gets on his face. Go back over to Psalm 51. What was David's attitude like while laying prostrate on his face? Here his child is dying. Is he angry at God? No, no. By the way, you say, well, but he had no right to be angry at God. Yeah, but you know what? People are angry at God all the time. And it makes no sense. Now, let me just, let me just rationalize with you here for a minute. We do wrong, God punishes us, and then we get angry at God. Um, what are we doing? Again, you do wrong, you do wrong. You could justify it, deny it, excuse it. Get real with yourself, would you? God's punishing you. Oh, I can't believe I got this problem in my life. I can't believe uh, this got taken away. I lost my job. And God, you're so unfair. Whoa, 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 whoa. He's perfect and holy, and you're filled with sin, and you want to throw stones at Him? You fall on your face. God, I can't believe you took my job away. I can't believe my marriage fell apart. I can't believe uh, my kids are turning out the way they are. I can't believe that this is going wrong. God says, whoa, hold on, hold on. Instead of throwing stones at me, how about you take a good long, hard look in the mirror and you own what you've done and you come to me with a heart of remorse. Look at Psalm 51 and verse 8, and we see that David is not angry at God. David is sorrowful over his sin. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Why, David? Because there's no joy and gladness in his bones. Look at the verse. That the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Look here. Renew a right spirit within me. David's spirit is cast down. He's sorrowful. Cast me not away from thy presence. I can see him praying this with sobs, in between sobs, 
as he realizes what he's done. And take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Look down at verse 17. David says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. I believe the reason why we don't break our sin habits is because we're not truly broken over our sin. We sin. We feel a little conviction inside from the Spirit of God. We rationalize and go right back to sinning again. We've become aloof. We've become hard-hearted toward the very behaviors that brutalized our Savior up on the cross. Each time that hammer fell on that nail, each time that whip cracked across his back, each drop of blood that dripped off the tip of his nose and the tip of his chin fell because of the sin that we commit. We do them over and over and over. We shrug our shoulders and say, well, it's not a big deal. I think sometimes we're like a pig returning to the mud. Instead of thriving in sanctification and purity, we end up wallowing in sin and putridness. Listen to, listen to this statement. This is technical, but very, very, very helpful for me. It's been very helpful for me. God does not want you to be sorry because of the consequences of your sin. He wants you to be heartbroken because of the act of your sin. We're sorry when we get caught. We're sorry when God takes something from us. We're sorry when the harvest comes in over the seeds we've planted. But are we sorry over the seeds we've planted? Do we hate the sin that nailed Jesus to the tree? Do we hate the sin that hurts the relationship that we're to have with our Father in Heaven? You cannot break habit sin until you own it and you're remorseful for it. That's not it. There's one more step. Letter B, notice his repentance. Look at verse 19. 2 Samuel 12, look at verse 19. But when David saw that his servants whispered, he's been on his face, by the way, he's been on his face without eating for seven days. Seven days, he's not moved. He's laid on the palace floor for seven days, prostrate and wept. It says there, when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said unto his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Look at how David responds, verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord 
and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he, and they, when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. True repentance always follows godly sorrow, godly remorse. In fact, you cannot have repentance, true repentance, until you have first had godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us that godly sorrow worketh repentance. Now, if you acknowledge your sin and own your sin, but you're not truly broken because of your sin, then you cannot and will not repent. If you acknowledge your sin, own your sin, and are sorrowful about the consequences of your sin, you will repeat your sin over and over and over again. And this becomes a vicious, discouraging cycle. As far as we know, David never ever committed these sins ever again. In fact, the meekest form of David came after he repented from his sin. He truly, truly repented. Look at verse number 21. Look at verse 21. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou hast fast and, and weep for the child while it was yet alive and when the child was dead, uh, thou didst... I'm, I'm supposed to be reading Psalm 51. I put the wrong notes in my Bible. Turn over to Psalm 51 and verse 21. Let me get over there. Psalm 51, 21 to 23. There is no 21 to 23. Okay. That's all right. Look with me at... Um, I'll get the verses here in a second. Bear, bear with me. Hold on. Yes, look at verse 13. David says this, he says, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted to thee. Listen to me, church. Some of you in here, this has been a hard sermon to hear, because you've made some vital mistakes in your past, and you think, what now, Pastor? Here's, here's the truth. If you've made some mistakes in your past, you, 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 you own it, you're remorseful, you repent. That means that you have a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Okay? If, if I tell my two-year-old, I don't have a two-year-old, if I had a two-year-old and I told my two-year-old, don't stick the fork in the electrical outlet, he's not going to get it until he sticks the fork in the electrical outlet and it hurts. You know what? That pain is going to cause some sorrow and he's going to turn and go, I'm never putting that fork in that electric outlet ever again. All right? Unless he's just a real uh, thrill seeker, okay? I'm never putting that in there again. He repents. Some of you have been hurt by sin, you've repented, you really have learned to hate your sin, you've gotten it right. Now what do you do? You teach others who've been hurt. You step up and say, I've been there, I've done that. Let me teach you the right way to go. Let me teach you how to recover from this. Verse 14. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted into thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Thou God of my salvation of my tongue shall sing aloud of uh, thy, uh, my tongue shall sing aloud um, of thy righteousness. Look down at 19. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings, and the whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. David says here, he says, I have learned how to show remorse. I have learned how to repent, and now I'm ready for God to use me in his service again. I'm almost done. I'm going to spend very, very little time on point four. But I just want to ask you a question tonight before I move on. When was the last time you wept over your sin? 
We've lost the doctrine of sorrow for sin. We've lost the ability to say, Lord, I have nailed You to the tree again with my sins. You forgave me this, and here I am returning back to Egypt, if you will. I'm doing wrong again. Lord, there's this habit in my life, and I've got to, I've got to take some serious steps to break it. When God confronts your sin, don't just shrug your shoulders. Well, you need to deal with that thing. Number four, notice God's power. God's power. I'm so thankful that the Bible is a book filled with the grace of God. And only God's power would be able to do what comes next. Letter A, God's power to forgive. To forgive. Look at verse 24 and 25. Let's pick up some, some pace here and we'll finish up the message. And David comforted Bathsheba his wife and went in unto her and lay with her. And she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon. Look at these, these next few words. I love this. And the Lord loved him. Amen? And he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet and called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. I guess Solomon's nickname was Jedidiah, all right? The Bible says the Lord loved him. What a beautiful picture of God's great grace. David had confessed his sin. He had turned from it. God then forgave him and blessed Bathsheba with yet another child who would be Israel's next king. And I want to say to you tonight, no matter how severe God's confrontation and punishment of your sin is, if you will truly repent, then God may very well forgive you and bless you. Some of you think, oh, my, my world has come to an end. I've done wrong and and I'm living under the punishing hand of God. And Listen, God doesn't want you to stay under His punishing hand. He wants you to own it. He wants you to show some godly remorse. And He wants you to repent. And then, uh, listen, He's going to move on from that and He's going to bless you again to do some great things. God wants to forgive you. He's waiting for you to own what you've done wrong. What's the First John 1.9 say? Say it with me. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice the ball's in your court. You own it, you confess and forsake, and God forgives. Letter B, God's power to fortify. Hey, God was not done blessing David and the nation of Israel. Look at verse 26. Let's read down to the end of the chapter. And Joab fought against Rabah, the children of Ammon, and took the royal city. Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabah and have taken the city of waters. Now therefore gather the rest of the of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. And David gathered all the people together and went to Reba and fought against it and took it. And he took their king's crown from off the head. The weight thereof was a talent of gold with the precious stones and it was set on David's head. And he brought forth the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought forth the people that were therein and put them under saws, under harrows of iron and under axes of iron, made them pass through the brickland. And thus did he unto the cities. Uh, of the children of Ammon. So David and all the people return unto Jerusalem. Many people think while under the punishing hand of God that their spiritual life is over, that God is angry with them and is done using them. Nothing could be further from the truth. God's power is greater than your sin. God punishes you out of love and for the purpose of restoration. Don't be so stubborn and proud. Uh, in, instead, humble your heart and so that He'll cease to punish you and confront you. And listen, when you do the, these things, you need to confess and repent. Then God can and will help the to pick up the broken pieces and he'll do something great 
with you once again. The question tonight is when God confronts you, are you going to shift? Are you going to deny? Are you going to ignore? Are you going to pretend as though it's not happening? Are you going to say, you know what, I need to get real with my sin and I need to get right with God. If you do those things, then God has a bright future for you. Oh, you're still going to have to live with the consequences of your choices as David's going to for the rest of his life. God still has great blessings for you in store. How do you handle it when God confronts your sin? Let's have our heads bowed. Let's have our eyes closed. Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. And David said, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. I think David's heart sank into his shoes. And then as the consequences began to be spelled out, David fell on the floor, poured his heart out before God. What sin did God put His finger on in your life as the sermon was preached? Where has God said to you, Thou art the man, Thou art the woman? It's time we get real with God. It's time we show some real sorrow for repentance. Lord God, tonight, would you work in our lives? If you can recover David after adultery and murder, Lord, then there is no one that you can't help here tonight. But Lord, it begins with a truly remorseful, repentant heart, as David had. God, would you work in our hearts tonight? Help us to truly do business deep down. Lord, help us to leave here tonight with some decisions that truly matter. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand.